what does it mean to be truly reformed or the necessity of the regular principle, the importance and necessity of the regular principle, part three. And uh, we're in a really interesting part. <clears throat> and uh, uh, next week, Lord willing, I, I think I have COVID. Next week, Lord, Lord willing, I'm going to get into the exegesis. And uh, I, I got into it, but I don't know if I'm going to get that far. And we were in the, just finishing up point number three from last week's sermon. Churchmen who invent their own modes of worship and cling to human traditions will respond that their inventions and traditions follow general teachings or principles of Scripture and therefore are perfectly lawful. I've said this over and over again. This, you find this over and over again. But we have seen that the regular principle requires specific proof, <coughs> not vague generalities and equivocations. Church leaders, pastors and elders, who although regenerate, are still sinful and fallible. <coughs> they receive a delegated authority from God. We're not Roman Catholics. And we're not Episcopalians. We don't believe that the men have, churchmen have intrinsic authority to make stuff up. God is, uh, they receive a delegated authority from God in purely circumstantial matters for the good ordering of the church. But only God, who is the absolute sovereign and creator of all things, has the right to bind men to faith and duty, doctrine, ethics, worship ordinances, church government. A proper declarative and ministerial ecclesiastical government will only seek to institute the laws, ordinances, and worship elements that Yahweh himself <coughs> has authorized in his word. And that's the teaching of the Reformed symbols, and especially the Westminster Standards, which is the clearest on this. Anything else is presumption, humanistic, and a shift toward Rome. Fourth. The sufficiency and perfection of Scripture renders human additions in worship unnecessary. The Bible is not only complete and the final or sole authority for faith and life, but it is also sufficient to fulfill its designed role in the church by God. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped <coughs> for every good work. The Bible presents itself as perfect and it says that explicitly in Psalm 19.8-9. God designed it to answer every spiritual necessity for mankind. It is given by God and is sufficient to make the Christian complete. It is breathed out by the Spirit of God and is infallible. It is given so that any person of faith or communion can meet all the demands and requirements of God, not simply in ethics, but also worship and church government. And that is why the Reformed faith is superior over Lutheranism and Episcopalianism. Calvin says this, and this is from a sermon on Timothy and Titus, <clears throat> because God speaks there, that's the Holy Scripture, and not men, so then we see how he shuts out all man's authority. God must have his preeminence above all creatures, both great and small, must submit themselves to him, and no man may presume to say, I will speak 
End of quote. You can't get any better than that. Now, Protestants agree that the Bible presents a perfect system of doctrine. And most agree that it presents a perfect full system of ethics. Yet for some reason, in the sphere of worship, many believe that it is not complete, it is not perfect or final. Many churchmen think it needs human additions, supplementations, and traditions. <clears throat> when men argue that we must just stick to what Scripture teaches and authorize, they are often accused of being legalistic, minimalist, unloving, troublers of the peace of the church, etc., But I ask you, what have men added to the, public, the worship of God? Uh, the worship authorized by God that has improved upon it. Tell me, what has men done that has improved on the worship that God has given us? Have sinful men improved upon the worship that God has instituted? Have they? Do you have any examples? If we study church history, we'll see nothing but inventions that are defective, inferior to what has been commanded by to what has been commanded, and corrupting. John Owen says this in the, the Reformation of the Church. The principle belonging to the worship of God, either to a matter or manner, beyond the observance of such circumstances, as necessarily attend such ordinances as Christ himself hath instituted, lies at the bottom of all the horrible superstition and idolatry of all the confusion, blood, persecution, and wars that have for a long season spread themselves over the face of the Christian world. You see, men make stuff up by a human authority. And then what do they do? They persecute people who won't submit to these man-made additions. 18,000 covenanters were killed by, by the prelates. The Episcopalians from England. 18,000 were killed. In Scotland. Because they refused to submit to man-made ordinances. It is arrogant to think that sinful man can improve upon or complete the way of worshiping God revealed in Scripture. Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 3.5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Arminian doctrines made their way into the Anglican Church quite early. And churchmen who argued against the Puritans asserted that human reason was reliable enough to form good, sanctifying ceremonies and worship ordinances. Remember, one of our points last week was that the man's sinful nature, his depravity, made, made him unqualified to determine worship principles. And the Episcopalians say, no, 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 it's not that bad. Worship is not that bad. And that's Arminianism. The problem with such thinking is threefold. One, it is based on a false understanding of the fall and the noetic effects of sin. Two, it ignores the many passages that forbid adding to the doctrine, ethics, or worship of God. Genesis 4, 3-5, Leviticus 1, 2, Deuteronomy 4, 2, 11, 28-32, 2 Samuel 6, 3-4, 6-7, 1 Chronicles 15, 13-15, Jeremiah 7, 31, and 19, 5, 1 Kings 20, 12, 28-33, Matthew 15, 1-9, Mark 7, 6-9, Matthew 28, 20, John 14, 19 to 24, Colossians 2, 20 to 23, etc. Number three. It assumes 
that the ordinance elements or parts of worship authorized by Scripture are somehow insufficient and inadequate. It's just not good enough. We need to add to it. It needs human invention. Consequently, human inventions need to be added to them to make them sufficient and adequate. Such arrogance and foolishness is astounding. Worship based on human creativity that does not come directly out of the sacred scriptures is worthless, humanistic, and offensive to God, who never commanded or authorized such traditions. We must humbly accept the precious doctrines and worship ordinances given to us by God and his word, for Jesus calls human inventions or innovations vain worship, Matthew 15, 9. It's vain. You may love your inventions. You may think they're great. You may feel very, very pious, and God hates it all, because he didn't command it. He didn't authorize it. That according to Paul is a form of self-imposed religion based on a false humility, which is of no value in our sanctification. Colossians 2, 20-23. Paul calls it will worship. Fifth. <coughs> worship ceremonies practices or ordinances based on human tradition are founded on a human authority and therefore are implicitly Romanistic and tyrannical. What don't we like about the Democratic Party? They make up crazy stuff and they try to impose that on people by force. They just make stuff up. They make up their own ethics. It's crazy. But the church does that too. Being based on human authority, they deny our liberty of conscience. It is sinful, arrogant, and very egotistical for churchmen to impose their humanistic inventions and traditions on the flock of Christ. It is a great sin, involving at the same time sacrilege and treason to the human race, <coughs> for any man or set of men to arrogate the prerogative of God and attempt to bind the consciences of their fellow men by any obligation not certainly imposed by God and revealed in his word. It's an imposition of a human, arbitrary authority. And what is that? That's Roman Catholicism. It's Romanism. And yet people accept it all the time. Whatever is done in public worship on the Lord's Day is an imposition. And that public worship on the Christian Sabbath is required of every Christian. Hebrews 10.25, 1 Corinthians 16.2. <clears throat> Although such additions are done in the name of circumstance, ad offer or general principles, they are legalistic and coercive because they flow from human authority, are treated as parts of divine worship, and are involuntary. We discussed this last week and how the Dutch imposed the church calendar on their congregants. They say they're reformed. They say they hold to the regulative principle, but if you don't follow their man-made holy days that, that are completely a church, they admit it's a church tradition, they admit it's not in scripture, uh, you're out. And that's wicked. That's Romanistic. One is placed in the position of either obeying the elders or obeying God speaking in the holy scriptures. <coughs> the idea that is common today that one should simply submit to unbiblical impositions by, of churchmen for the sake of peace and unity of the church, is totally Romanistic and unscriptural. 
Jesus and his disciples, this is Matthew 15, Mark 7, refused to wash their hands before they ate bread. Now, could you think of a more innocent tradition than that? The Pharisees had made it a law, a rule, that there had to be a ritual washing of hands before you could eat. And Jesus said, we're not going to do it because you don't have the authority to, to impose this. And when you man, people impose their own things, they drive out the true worship of God. <clears throat> it was a very innocent-sounding human tradition and a long-standing practice of Pharisaical Judaism at that time. Even though it was the position of the conservative Jewish elders, the Pharisees were the conservatives of their day. And Jesus said, I'm not going to do it. And my disciples aren't going to do it. Our Lord openly and emphatically rejected human traditions and worship precisely because they had no divine or scriptural authority. Matthew 15, 1-9. Christ taught that to cooperate with human traditions and worship is to contribute to the overthrowing of commanded biblical procedures. Matthew 15, 3 and 6. The submission to human authority without divine warrant for the sake of the peace and unity of the church has unwittingly trained modern Reformed Christians that the corruption of worship and violations of the first table of the law are light in consequential matters. Presbyterians have been trained to regard the great attainments, standards, and covenants of our Presbyterian forefathers regarding worship as unimportant. Their biblical achievements can be broken, violated, watered down, and disregarded all in the name of love and unity. So this is a very serious issue. It's a very, very serious issue. We don't do things because the elders say so unless the elders have scripture backing them up. And you have the right, as a Christian, to ask your elders, well, give me some biblical proof for that. Where is Christmas in scripture, for example? Where do we find the church writing uninspired hymns in the scriptures? It is ironic, however, that the very churchmen who insist that we submit to human traditions and non-commanded innovations in worship for the sake of peace and unity have themselves broken and rejected the biblical, thoroughly proved and established teaching and covenants of past lawful synods and assemblies. For example, carefully read the Directory for Public Worship in the Westminster Standards and compare it to what's going on now. Okay, they had wine in a real big cup around tables where people faced each other. Real wine in a real big cup. Now it's thimbles of grape juice sitting in the congregation. And so on. In other words, the very men who have shown themselves to be divisive and schismatic by rejecting our past lawful Presbyterian standards and covenants in order to tolerate, accept, and propagate human additions and traditions and worship demand that we submit to their corruptions now that they are in power. How arrogant is that? We've departed from John Knox and Samuel Rutherford and George Gillespie and the Westminster Standards and the all the original covenants. We've rejected what they teach. We've departed from that. But now that we're in power, you better submit to us. But they're the ones who are schismatic. They're the ones who rejected the covenant and attainments of the Reformation. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked. Above all things, 
<coughs> it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Those who broke the covenants in order to corrupt the worship of God now demand that we shut our mouths and accept their corruptions. Otherwise, we are unloving and schismatic. But how can obeying the word of God and submitting to thoroughly biblical church standards and covenants be unlawful or schismatic? Obedience to scripture is never schismatic. What, are we supposed to disobey scripture to, to keep churchmen happy who are in sin? Is that what they're saying? Was Jesus schismatic for refusing to submit to the Pharisees' human traditions? The only way to accept the modern Presbyterian argument for unity through submission to man-made traditions is to presuppose a Roman Catholic or Anglican concept of ecclesiastical authority. And Presbyterians talk this way all the time. If, they, if a synod or an assembly makes an unbiblical ruling, their, their, their view is, well, you have to submit to it. Synod has made a ruling. Well, a general assembly, a church council, a synod, cannot impose something that's not required by Scripture. They don't have that authority. And you do not have to submit to it. And Christ didn't submit to the Pharisees when they told him to wash his hands. Many Presbyterian elders today have a Roman Catholic concept of ecclesiastical authority, and they don't know it. In our day, Jenny Geddes would not be a hero, but an outcast. If you don't know who that is, she's the lady who threw the stool at the guy saying the, the liturgy, the high church liturgy. The Westminster Confession of Faith rejects modern Presbyterian declension and instead reflects the teaching and example of Jesus. Here's what it says. This is 22, 20, colon 2. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are on anything contrary to the word or beside it. What does that mean, or beside it means? It means human additions. It may not be contrary, but you can't add to it at all. In matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. End of quote. What a beautiful statement. What a radical statement. Radically scriptural. Believers are free not only from the doctrines and commandments that are contrary to God's word, confession to a priest, the mass, bowing before statues, but also ones that are additions to what scripture authorized. Man-made holy days, grape juice and communion, musical instruments in public worship, uninspired hymns, rock bands in worship, performance artists, etc. Christians have a moral obligation as disciples of Christ to reject, disobey, and not cooperate with worship practices derived from human authority. If we do not disobey, then we support the real schismatics and covenant breakers. Any doctrine or commandment contrary to or besides his will in matters religious, the Christian not only may, but must, must disobey. Must disobey. Liberty of conscience means the liberty of the individual to obey God rather than man. Now, that may sound radical to you, but Christ certainly taught that. The Bible certainly teaches that. 
Christ never submitted to anything that was man-made. He refused to cooperate with it totally. And that's what he taught his apostles, and that's what he teaches us. And then sixth. Oh, I got one. I got a footnote here. Now, what do you do if you're in a corrupt or reformed church that has been... Uh, if one is in a corrupt Presbyterian Reformed Church and has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit regarding the true meaning and application of the regular principle, one must disagree, obviously respectfully, with and confront one's elders respectfully and lovingly. And keep in mind that many Presbyterian pastors and elders today do not even know what the regular principle is. I, I taught in a church on the regular principle. I taught in a big PCA church when I was in Michigan on the regular principle. And none of the elders knew what it was. They'd never heard of it. The people had never heard of it. They'd never heard of it. And when I, I sat, that was a Sabbath class, and when I sat in the church for the sermon, he preached a sermon against alcohol, which is legalistic nonsense. The Bible condemns drunkenness. However, when is one month... One must seek to reform one's session, and if repentance is not forthcoming, they should be brought upon charges in a decent and orderly manner. However, if one's denomination has accepted corruptions at the Senate or General Assembly level, then such charges would not only be futile, but a complete waste of time. In other words, the Senate or General Assembly has already spoken and said, we constitutionally accept this corruption. We constitutionally accept this addition to, to worship. And that's the case today, where they've accepted them and they put them in their constitutions. The denomination is constitutionally corrupt, and the churchmen involved have broken their covenant obligations to uphold corporately the attainments of the Presbyterian Reformation. In such case, one is morally obligated to transfer one's membership to a faithful covenant-keeping Presbyterian communion. Worshiping God without a divine appointment is an implicit acceptance of and advocacy for some kind of uh, key elements of popery and prelacy. First John 5.21, little children, keep yourself from idols. And you say, well, that sounds radical. Well, the, the, the attitude of people today is, well, the churches are all corrupt. That, we have to go somewhere. Let's just all accept it. Well, that wasn't the position of the original covenanters. They'd move to find a faithful covenanter church. They didn't just go to the local corrupt church and say, oh, well, we have to be corrupt. Let's, teach, let's have our children be taught with corruptions. They didn't do that. And until the people have that attitude, like the original covenanters, there will be no reformation. There's no consequences for these churches doing all sorts of Romanistic garbage. There's no consequences. The original Presbyterian Covenanters and Puritans were willing to be persecuted and die for the preservation of biblical worship. Today, the typical Presbyterian elder simply adds another exception to the standards. Because they do not really care about purity of worship. They don't care. Violations against Yahweh and the first table are deemed less important and less relevant than violations against the second table. They don't allow fornication or adultery. But violating the second commandment, that's no big deal. I'm, that's the situation today. Christians who insist on obedience to the regular principle, strict or full subscription, and the keeping of our covenant obligations are viewed as nutcases and deluded fools. 
they are regarded as divisive, legalistic, unloving. And I'm saying you should be nice and friendly about this. You shouldn't be a jerk. But if you're in a church and they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff, like most PCA churches that I know of, you need to find another church. But a strict obedience to what Scripture authorizes and requires is never legalistic. It's never legalistic to obey Scripture. It is called faithfulness. A strict belief in an application of solo scripture to worship is one of the most loving things one could do for preserving pure gospel worship for ourselves and our children. can only bring us covenant blessings and true joy. The RPCNA in the late 1800s was over 12,000. And then by 1978 or so, they were uh, 3,800 or something. Now part of that was they weren't being evangelistic enough. And that's a problem with Reformed churches. You've got to be evangelistic. But a big part of that was, is once you don't take the regular principles seriously anymore, their kids all went off and married Baptists and people that uh, didn't believe in, in the Westminster Standards. And they were lost forever. And that's not a good thing. Can modern Presbyterians or Puritans be guilty of legalism or denying a brother's Christian liberty when they are only faithfully following the laws and ordinances of Scripture without human admixture or traditions? Remember, it is not for elders to make new rules and standards for worship and morals. But as stewards of the mysteries of God, theirs is faithfully to administer the institutions warranted by higher authority. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 4, 9, 16, 17, Colossians 1, 25, Titus 1, 5 to 9. Biblical elders might be likened to judges and sheriffs, called not to make new laws, but to see that the provisions of existing legislation are fulfilled. We see this in the modern debate over the Constitution. The conservative says, look, it has an original meaning, let's stick to the original meaning. The liberal says, let's make it say anything we want it to. Stuff that has nothing to do with the Constitution. And that's called relativism. Or like the trustees of a deed, they are entrusted with responsibility to see that the will of the testator is honored and have no functions to add supplementary stipulations to the deed. Conformity to Christ's commands is the measure of an elder's fidelity to his stewardship. Human traditions accumulate over time. And according to Jesus Christ in Matthew 15, they eventually nullify, push out, and overshadow the true worship that was authorized by God. They have a negative influence. They push out the true worship. The Church of Christ is a very old organization. When men add a few of their own human traditions to public worship, and these inventions are accepted, adopted, and loved by the people, they become permanent parts of public worship. As each generation adds something new, these additions accumulate over time. In the papal church, things accumulated to the point where the original simple apostolic worship was unrecognizable. 
I know I was raised in a Roman Catholic church. For example, the sign of the cross, the use of holy water, special holy bells and candles, the burning of incense, processions, genuflecting toward the host, priestly garments, articular confession, choirs, musical instrumentation, performances, the mass, intricate Latin liturgies, the use of statues, prayers to Mary and prominent saints, transubstantiation, receiving the host by kneeling in the front of a priest instead of facing other Christians seated around the table, the removal of wine from the lady during communion, the creation of special holy days, Easter, Ash Wednesday, etc., Christmas. A few additions here and there may seem inconsequential at first. But as many generations have passed, the Roman Catholic Church became totally idolatrous in worship and heretical in doctrine. By rejecting Sola Scriptura as it applies to worship, the Church's worship was allowed to evolve and change until it became thoroughly corrupt, with only a few remnants of the original apostolic practice remaining. I don't think it's an accident that the very men who were openly attacking the regular principle, Doug Wilson, Steve Slissel, James Jordan, Peter Lightheart, have all been advocates of the federal vision, which denies justification by faith alone. When you become a Roman Catholic in worship, in principle, it's not long before it corrupts other elements, aspects. When Presbyterian Reformed Churches abandon the true meaning and application of the regular principle, they have set themselves adrift from biblically authorized worship to the unauthorized, humanistic, evolving worship that produced the apostate Roman Catholic Church. The pure, simple, biblical worship of our Puritan Presbyterian forefathers has progressively been set aside for human ideas and traditions. Like I said, you could go to any independent church, like, well, John Owen-style independent church, or any Presbyterian church in the, in the you know, from 1600 to, you know, for the whole 17th century. And their worship services were all identical. They had the 1650 Psalter. They had the King James Bible. They followed what was in the directory for worship, which is based on scripture. And nowadays, churches are like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get until you go. You have no idea. The end product of such a process are churches whose worship practices have drifted far from their biblical moorings, and now most Reformed churches have worship that is indistinguishable from Arminian evangelical communions who have never even heard of the regular principle. What's the difference between a typical Reformed Reform Presbyterian church today and the Assemblies of God? Their hymnal might be a little bit better. But there's really no difference, because there is no regular principle anymore. The strict application of the regular principle produced a uniformity of worship for human autonomy and subjective ideas were kept out of the church. Now, But now every man does what he considers right in his own eyes. We visited a Christian Reformed church, me and my wife, the RPCNA. These goofball elders uh, from Indiana made us go to some worship conference in... in uh, LA and it was things like uh, what kind of a worship leader are we going to have it was all this complete nonsense that was just had nothing to do with scripture it was a complete waste of time 
It was absurd. And then we visited a Christian Reformed church, and uh, they showed videos. Uh, they had tons of entertainment, and they had, uh, they had drama groups. And then when the guy preached, he preached for about 15 minutes, and it was a little cute little psychological message. This serious declension is accepted by the people for a number of reasons. Number one, the majority of church members are ignorant of the teaching of Scripture on this issue and do not know about the attainments and covenants of our much more faithful Presbyterian forefathers. That's why it's important to know church history. We should know it. What were the covenanters like? They weren't anything like the Presbyterians today. They weren't anything like the RPCNA today. Two, due to our sinful natures, there is a love and attachment to human traditions and worship, especially long-standing traditions. You know, the, my Christmas book, for example, people would read it, they'd say, hey, you've proved your biblical case, but I love Christmas, so I'm going to keep celebrating it. Spurgeon says, if you know something's a sin and you keep doing it, that's a pretty good sign you may not be regenerate. If you know something's a sin, you shouldn't keep doing it. You should repent. Three, we live in a time of lukewarmness and apathy. In our day, professing Christians, generally speaking, are not interested in reformation. People are ignorant of the truth and comfortable in their declension. Their attitude is, don't rock the boat. When I was in the RPC and I was trying to plant a church, they sent me to plant a church with one family. Uh, and the guy had psychological problems and they didn't last long. He was a he had a nervous breakdown. He was he was a mess. But uh, when they came to talk to me and you know give me updates, they would they'd say things like, "Well, they would basically say, don't don't preach reform stuff, don't 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 emphasize reform distinctives. What you want to do is have barbecues and you know you want to." They basically wanted me to be like an Arminian. I'd rather have a tiny church than a church like that. Number four. The disregarding of the regular principle and the many corruptions in worship that attend it has such a long history in most Reformed circles that churchmen vigorously defend their corruptions. Jeremiah understood this great difficulty involved in re repenting from a long-standing habitual corruption. Jeremiah 13.23 Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. If you look at the history of Presbyterianism, all these, all these very sophisticated arguments, like by Greg Bonson and, and others, against exclusive psalmody, these were all developed long after the change came. They were developed to justify their, their corruption. They weren't developed, it wasn't as though they went to Scripture and said, hey, the Bible says we need to be writing uninspired hymns. <coughs> and the OPC, back in the 40s, they had a committee on the issue, and the OPC admitted there is no biblical proof for uninspired hymns in Scripture. But they did it anyway. Number five. In our time, violations regarding worship are seen as a very minor, inconsequential offense. Violating solo scripture in worship is generally not even considered to be a sin. But in church, but a church in sin, due to false teachings, gross ignorance, and a long-standing corruptions, is still in sin, whether it admits it or not. And this is certainly the teaching of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Quote, The duties required in the Second Commandment are 
the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. Questions 108 109. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Well, what are some of the corruptions that have become common in Reformed and Presbyterian churches in the past 150 years that we should seek to eliminate? Number one, the inspired, perfect, sufficient book of Psalms as a manual of praise has been almost completely supplanted in most Reformed communions. In the United States, uninspired hymns were not officially permitted until 1788. That's well over 200 years after the Reformation with John Knox. John Knox's Reformation occurs in the 1550s. And, of course, Calvin is even earlier. For around 250 years, the inspired Psalter in sacred scripture was the manual of praise in all Reformed churches. And the first book published in America was the Bay Psalm book printed for the New England Puritans in 1640. The very first book printed in the United States. Now think about it now with all our transgendered and sodomites and everything, how far we've fallen. The first uninspired Presbyterian hymn book did not come out until 1824, about 200 years later. Today the supplanting of the Psalter has become so nearly complete that most Reformed Christians have never heard of exclusive psalmody, and the ones who have usually think it is absurd. If one carefully studies the element of singing praise and worship in the Old Testament, one will see that songs for public worship could only be written by prophets or seers, that is, men who had the gift of divine inspiration. David, Asaph. And you can read my book. It's on, uh, on reformedonline.com. I have a whole book on this where I go into great detail. Not everybody could just say, hey, you know, I, I have a good idea for a song. You guys want to sing this? No. You had to be a prophet. In every instance in the Old Testament, every one of them. Two, musical instrumentation in public worship as an accompaniment to the element of singing was not a part of public worship in Presbyterian circles until the 1880s. Calvin and the original Reformers regarded the use of musical instruments in public worship as Levitical and tied to the ceremonial worship at the temple. This is also the position of the Presbyterians of the Second Reformation and Congregational Puritans, and even people like uh, John Gill, and even Spurgeon. The evidence for this position, by the way, is overwhelming. Musical instruments <coughs> were introduced into the corporate worship of God by God through divine revelation, through David and Asaph, both prophets, during the period of the Levitical temple system. The service of the Levitical priest in the earthly temple with its priestly garments, blood sacrifices, incense, progressive inner sanctums, musical accompaniment during the sacrificial ritual, Levitical choirs, and ceremonial holy utensils was designed for the Old Testament church, which was under a tutor, Galatians 3.23-25. After Jesus died and rose from the dead, we are no longer under a tutor, Galatians 3.25. New covenant worship was patterned after the synagogue, which did not use priestly garments, incense, sacrifices, or musical instruments. Very similar to Christian worship. 
scripture readings and exegesis and the singing of psalms without instruments. Not only were the instruments designed by the Holy Spirit, they could only be played by specific Levitical families. This family played the cymbals, this family played the lyre, this family played the harp. This proves that God does not regard musical accompaniment in public worship as circumstantial. It's not circumstantial. Because churchmen no longer draw the line in worship where God has drawn the line, and therefore has set public worship adrift on the sea of human autonomy and pragmatism, we have now music soloists, rock bands, gospel groups, choirs, plays, high church liturgical Eucharistic services, trumpet solos, you name it. Pragmatic will worship may be fun and may attract a crowd, but God will not accept it or bless it because it's not commanded by God, it's not authorized in his word. Sincerity and enthusiasm is not enough in the sphere of worship. The crucial thing is, did it originate in God's heart, and did he command it? Jeremiah 7.31, Deuteronomy 4.2, and 12.32. The Christian Sabbath, Sunday, the first day of the week, was the only holy day among Presbyterians from John Knox until about the 20th century. Man-made holy days such as Christmas were regarded as papal and pagan and were forbidden because they were not commanded in Scripture. This changed during the declension of the 19th century when the regular principle was largely forgotten and churchmen caved into cultural pressures from popular, wider, social, worldly practices. All of these practices that were unbiblical came in to please congregants who were doing things and they didn't know why. And the pastors didn't know why they were doing them either, so they just caved into it. By the mid-20th century, all Presbyterians were celebrating Christmas except for a few small, strict subscription of Scottish Presbyterian denominations and a few strict congregations in the United States. The exaltation of Christmas as a de facto holy day is not only very dishonest, for Jesus certainly wasn't born in December, but also greatly dishonors Christ who did not authorize this religious festival day and who certainly does not appreciate his, his incarnation being arbitrarily associated with a pagan holy day, Saturnalia. Imagine if we celebrated your wife, let's say your wife was born on September 5th. And you said, well, we're going to celebrate your birthday on uh, a day dedicated to Baal or a day dedicated to Asherah. What would she think? I don't think she'd be too pleased. Well, imagine what Christ thinks. It's not an accident that the exaltation of Christmas as a man-made holy day has been accompanied with a much more lax, weak, lax concept of biblical Sabbatarianism. <coughs> when the regular principle is ignored, corporate faithfulness will, de will decline. Those elders and believers who still adhere to the regular principle, biblically defined, may be considered behind the times, culturally irrelevant, unloving, legalistic, and even schismatic. But in reality, they are only being faithful to the clear teaching of Scripture and the worship principle that was accepted, confessionalized, and covenanted to by the Calvinistic reformers. 
the Puritan divines and all the original Presbyterians. We're not allowed to break a covenant unless we can prove that the covenant is unlawful. We're not allowed to simply break a covenant for any reason. If there's something in the covenant that we can show is unlawful, then we can break it. But if it's not unlawful, we have to follow it. It's binding. And of course, it's part of the Westminster Standards. What God requires of us is not merely subjective feelings of devotion, nor merely good intentions, but a hearty faith in his word, which results in obedience to his revealed will. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6. And biblical faith always presupposes a trust in and reliance upon the truths, imperatives, and promises revealed in sacred scripture. Hebrews 4.2 and following in 11.1-39. In religious matters, Yahweh is not impressed with faith in man's humanistic ingenuity. He emphatically rejects will worship. We're going to stop there because next, Lord willing, we're going to turn to some passages and get to the, the real beef. But these are good theological reasons logical reasons, theological reasons why if you don't hold to the regular principle, I mean, you really have a choice. The regular principle or some form, some form of Romanism or Lutheranism or Episcopalianism, which is a violation of Scripture. That's your choice. But we're Presbyterians. We're Reformed. We hold to the Covenant, covenant, covenant and Reformation of Westminster Standards, the best thing written. We have to stick with it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Help us, Lord, to take all these things very seriously, for nobody does today. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and reformed in all these areas so that the church could be reformed. And once again, every church would have true gospel worship. In Jesus' name, amen.